today's show is brought to you by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. The content industry is constantly evolving. To keep up, you need a tool that's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everybody on the same page. Airtable has been used by companies like Time Magazine, Group 9 Media, and BuzzFeed Motion Pictures. It lets you manage your entire creative process from ideation to content creation. Airtable empowers you to do your work your way. You can try it today. Just head to Airtable.com slash Recode Media to receive $50 in free credits. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network here at Vox Media Headquarters in New York City. Normally, I spend this part of the podcast asking you to tell someone else about this podcast. But here, I just want to give a special shout out to Laurel Hellerstein and her students at Endicott College in Beverly, Massachusetts, who are sharing this podcast amongst themselves. Thanks, guys. I like that you listen. I also like that Eugene Way is here in the studio with me. Eugene, uh, welcome. Thank you. You've got a long, crazy bio, which Mm -hmm. is one of the reasons I want to have you here. What's the best way of describing you in in this state today? Hmm. I don't want to call you the former head of Flipboard product, which is <laughs> my, my worry is that the podcast label is going to say Eugene Way was the former head of product at Flipboard. Uh, yeah. You, but I want to call you a thinkfluencer. Okay. <laughs> I haven't heard but that's, that term that's not polite. Oh, no, no. People actually use it. Well, you, the fake Jeff Jarvis account yes. uses it. Right. Um, smart guy. Guy who's worked at a million media companies that I'm all interested in. <laughs> that, that's better. Probably better than thinkfluencer. What's paying your bills today? You said, you're in work. you said you're in New York for, for meetings. That, that implies a job or, or some kind of professional <laughs> No, thing. no, I don't have an official job right now. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm free and uh, footloose in whatever the saying goes right now and uh, trying to figure out what's next. Okay. So, I will yeah. fill in some of the bio gaps sure, for you. Sure, sure. You are, you are an early employee of Amazon, somewhere in the 300 yeah, range. 300s, I think it was. Yeah, it's pretty uh-huh. early. I uh, worked there for a bunch of years as a, as a business analyst. Is that the correct uh, I did that for about a year and a half, and then I moved over to product to work on the video store launch, and then stayed on product, worked um, a bit on third-party seller platform, worked on the apparel launch, uh, and then the last thing I worked on was the Amazon Web Services team. But this is you did a million things at Amazon. Yeah, um, left Amazon, went to film school for a couple <laughs> minutes, uh, and uh-huh. then had a variety of jobs, including a product at Hulu, uh-huh. product at Flipboard, uh-huh. that we talked about something yep. called Airtime. If, if you have a deep <laughs> knowledge of, of failed internet startups, uh-huh. remember that one. Uh, you ran video at Oculus uh-huh. for a couple years. That's right. And now the reason a lot of people have heard about you. I was emailing you before. I feel like you're, you're my indie band that blew up. Um, <laughs> you're not a professional blogger because you're not getting paid for it. No. But you're dropping all this deep knowledge at your personal blog, which is called? Uh, I, I guess it's titled Remains of the Day. Remains of the Day. Yeah. Um, and so many of you will have read this blog. And if you haven't, you'll go read it after this conversation. Don't stop and then come back. Just, just listen to us talk. Um, it's this great combination of Eugene's personal musings about culture and tech and product, it's all mashed together, and it's like going to college for free <laughs> from Eugene's brain. Um, there was a post you did a few weeks ago um, that I think sort of got everyone's attention, maybe over a slow news weekend. It was, mm-hmm. you know, it was Memorial Day weekend. That's it was. Part, that was part it of the was. reason. That's the um, But Bill Gurley gave it a shout-out. This is the one where you sort of walk through the, the, the flaws of all the existing social, social media uh, products. Challenges. Instagram, Snapchat, <laughs> et cetera. I want to talk about that for a second, but I just want to ask you, because it, it seemed like that one popped in a way other right. ones haven't. Right. What is it like when a, a blog post you put up for free 
grabs everyone's attention. People like Bill Gurley, who runs Benchmark. Mm-hmm. What happens after that? Does your inbox get flooded with hmm, requests? Yeah. Are people wanting you to come pick your brain? Yeah, it's a mix of all of the above, probably. It's not like it happens <laughs> that frequently for me. That one probably is the thing that I've written in my life that's been the most read and shared. So it was new for me. Uh, probably for a lot of your listeners who have a lot of followers on Twitter, they're used to just their phone being a constant stream of notifications. But People want things from you, right? I would assume. <laughs> Besides just come come blog with me or yeah. come, come podcast with me. Some. I mean, certainly it's it's gotten me... Uh, a bunch of interesting proposals and offers, and uh, certainly a lot of companies were curious about the ideas and wanted to talk about them in depth. So I've spent some amount. I, w- I was already spending some part of my time just sort of advising different companies that would just bring me in every so often. So I just got more of those. I, I, I don't want to yeah. oversell this, but I'm, uh-huh. I'm going to really hype this. This yeah. is this is great writing. It's super interesting. It's the kind of thing you could charge money for. It's the kind <laughs> of thing Ben Thompson is Stratechery sells on a weekly basis for mm-hmm. 10 bucks a month times mm-hmm. tens of thousands of subscribers makes real money from it you're doing it for free sometimes I, especially in the earlier days of blogging you'd see people like fred wilson mm-hmm. from union square would blog a lot and it was very actively promotional wanted right. to talk up his business talk up individual products he didn't yeah. startups he'd invested in yeah. you don't seem to have that book to talk up other than yourself is this just right. it's just literally something you're doing for giggles or is there a professional reason to do this uh it never started out as a professional thing i mean i started my blog in 2001 this was back in yeah. you know the days of like i started on blogger and there were there were like live journal and nobody was reading it i mean the audience you were still working for amazon I was. I was. It was just a personal thing for me. So I can't say that I was ever in it for yeah. some professional But now purpose. doing it now, doing something like the post we're going to sort of go through in a little yeah. bit, it takes you a long time to write. It's yeah. obviously well thought out. Yeah. I think, you know, I enjoy putting ideas out there now. Well, first of all, uh, all the posts that um, have really popped for me have been on tech or company sure. or things. Just the it fits the audience and if it gets on tech meme or you know in the early days like Hunter Walk might tweet a link to something and it would just pop onto tech meme every so often. So I've tried to avoid feeling like I should just write that type of stuff because I'm interested in other things. But certainly that gets the widest audience. Uh, for me, I enjoy putting ideas out there because you know I got more emails on this than anything I've ever written and some of them had interesting feedback and, you know, I like conversation as a way to sort of challenge ideas and sort of like mold them and putting it out there for a wide audience gets me just sort of a broader set of people to talk about it. It's just a reflection of what's in your head. I got to confess, I wish you had done this earlier in your life, uh, this kind of blogging, because I didn't notice it when I first met you. Mm-hmm. When I met you, your job was, I think you were doing product at, at Hulu, but the reason mm-hmm. I knew about you is because... You were the guy because the person who'd done comms had left. Right, right. You were the guy whose job duty now included responding to Peter Kafka's annoying <laughs> emails and phone calls. So you were like you were like part time comms guy. Right, right. I could have been a bot actually because I, I mostly said that we couldn't comment on it. Yeah, you were very good at that. But I, I, I will confess that I know many people who are in comms. Many people are very good at their jobs, but I generally don't assume that people in comms are writing super deep dives in, into product stuff sure, as well. Sure. Well, you so know the game. The, you, you know, were doing like, that on the 
the side. <laughs> you know, when you're actually at a company and in comms, you really can't be that interesting, or it's not yeah. your job to be interesting. Uh, that's a different game that uh, comms people have to play with the media. Yeah, so. I just feel dumb. I didn't realize that there was a Eugene Way like resource <laughs> available to me. I just didn't know how to access it. <laughs> it's 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 sparse. It's not uh, certainly not like uh, Ben Thompson or any anybody like that that's writing so regularly, but every now and then. Let's talk about the post that, that popped for you. This sure. is, uh, I, had, I had to Google up what an asymptote is. Am I pronouncing <laughs> it correctly? You are. How did Good you job. learn what an asymptote was? Oh, it's uh, anyone uh, who studied certain parts of math probably back in is, the day are familiar with that. Is something you picked up high schools uh, or at Stanford? Uh, you know, probably. Somewhere okay. somewhere in math. The invisible the asymptote. And uh-huh. then an asymptote is, for, for the handful of listeners who don't know what an asymptote <laughs> is. Yeah, like when people talk about something that converges on an asymptote, it's like if you look at a, a curve or something like that and it starts to flatten out over time, the asymptote is just sort of that ceiling. Right. This that, is the yeah. ceiling. Yeah, yeah. So for That's dummies, this would be an invisible it. ceiling. And mm-hmm. the, the idea here is every company has an invisible ceiling. It's mm-hmm. invisible. They don't know what it is, but it, right. their, their growth is going to stop. They're going to hit it, and right. figuring out what that ceiling is right. allows you to then keep growing. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, there's been so much good writing done about startups trying to find product market fit. You know, and that and that's like a different set of problems. Right. But there's a lot of stuff. You know, Chris Dixon's written about the idea maze, and and you know, Andreessen about you know how important it is to find. You're trying to get fit. out of the gate. Yeah, and, and exactly. People, are, people are familiar with that idea. How do you get going? Right. How do you find a thing people want? Exactly. Now you're at, you've been growing, mm-hmm. your growth is going to stop. How right. do you deal with that? Yeah, and I think there was just less writing maybe about that. You know, on the traditional S-curve, it's the top where it starts to like right. flatten out. And that shoulder, um, I, I've been at big companies. And I've also looked at the companies in, you know, in tech and been long been fascinated by that, which I just think is somewhat understudied and Part of way, maybe why that post resonated was I think there are just a lot of companies, even even a startup that's found initial product market fit, that quickly hits some flattening or some plateau. Right. And uh, what I wanted to do was try to just uh, talk about some different companies, talk about some theories on why they might be hitting that. Right. Uh, I've always and, thought about yeah. this as a as a problem with management, right? Like the mm-hmm. thing that you the the company that breaks out with ten or a hundred people. Sure. The problem usually is that the people who run that company with 100 people aren't equipped to run it as, as it hits 1,000. Right. And I think that is true. Yeah, uh, that's definitely and people true. People don't talk that much about that either. Right. But you're saying, look, it's the actual pro- – I yeah. want to view it from the product lens. What is the what is the issue with the mm-hmm. product that is going right. to cause that problem? Right. So with Amazon, you say the thing we figured out early on was people didn't want to pay for shipping. Yeah. So yeah. we spent a lot of time trying to figure that problem out, and we did, and that helped, allowed us to keep going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I think at Amazon, well, well, both things you said are right. One is that there's very clearly uh, a set of internal, cultural, organizational, structural things that many companies run into at certain sizes. And those are probably fairly fixed on employee number and size. Uh, and actually, at Amazon, I felt like there was a lot of study done on that as well. But separate from that, there are some things just with your product or service and the interaction with the market that can create a natural ceiling. And so that that is an area that's, I think, often more difficult to understand because it can be multidimensional. There can be very many um, different things that cause that. Uh, and and Amazon, also it seems like yeah. that, that people might, people who run a company, who start a company, might be more willing to accept in a, in a way, maybe I'm just 
making this up on the spot, that there's an issue with management. Maybe it's even an issue with the founder slash CEO, and they're not equipped for that. They might feel uh, yeah. They might feel accepting of that criticism because they can sort of get sure. their head around it, as opposed to the thing you've built has a natural limit and isn't going to move beyond this unless we change it in a significant way. Right, right. You know, when Andreessen writes about, you know, hey, you know, product market fit is the only thing that really matters in the beginning for a startup. That's very clarifying because you're like, hey, look, we're just going to keep pivoting and trying different things until you get some traction and you're sort of accepting of that. Once you have some adoption, though, I think it's very, very easy to fall into the trap of um, being blind <laughs> to some of what's holding yeah. you back. And, and one of the things I talk about there is uh, you know, sometimes your earliest customers are the ones that will blind you to so that, that. Right. So that's yeah. that's let's let's go into the the individual sure. companies you're looking at. That's the one you bring up at the beginning when you're talking about Twitter. Mm-hmm. Twitter's fundamental issue is the the thing that made Twitter successful. Mm-hmm. Basically, at the, at the am I summing that up correctly? Yeah. Like I think Twitter is one of those cases where you know every little change they've made to the product, the, the heaviest users have really protested. There's people who loved Twitter for a long time. You mm-hmm. and I are. One, yeah, in that sure. group, um, and I—I I mean, I don't care what, what the what happens to the product, but the point is, it's it's it, it really works for them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that any attempt to sort of expand it into a bigger audience is not worry, runs the risk of upsetting those people, or right. and or those people are too loud in Twitter's mm-hmm. head when they try mm-hmm. to make those changes. Yeah, you know. Uh, there are certain products for which I think, you know, later users and later adopters actually do want the same thing as the early adopters. Uh, and there are certain products for whom that's not <laughs> the case. And actually, my theory is on Twitter is that, you know, that that is the case. They're one of the latter type of companies. And so your most vocal and heaviest users may be the ones that prevent you from making the types of changes you need to to reach a broader audience whether that's on the same product itself or on derivative products that better serve another audience, that's another matter entirely. But that's definitely a trap. And I'm quoting you, falling into the trap of thinking other users will be like you is especially pernicious because the people building the product are usually among that early adopter cohort. It reads better than it sounds coming out of my <laughs> mouth. Yeah. Um, do you think that there could have been or is still a way for Twitter to innovate its way into a bigger audience? Or do you think... Look, this is just a finite audience. It's around 300 million people worldwide. Mm-hmm. Everyone has now sort of seen Twitter, mm-hmm. and they get what it is, and they either mm-hmm. love it or they don't want it. Yeah, you know, I, the in the current form, sort of Twitter, the app that people have on their phones, and, and, and that one that we're all familiar with, I certainly think there's some asymptote to how large that audience can be. But if you look at the raw material of Twitter, you know, how many people are on it, commenting on different things, posting links, posting media, commenting other things that are happening in the world. From that raw material, there are actually probably other things you could build, other products or services that would be more broadly appealing, um, appeal to different customer segments. Uh, I think that actual data is, and the structure of that data is actually very fascinating, sort of in the way that Google looked at web links way back in the day and said, you know what, there's something we can derive from the structure of the (laughs) web itself, which is different but very useful. And do you think the idea, just so I'm clear, do you think the idea here is Twitter could build new products that would appeal to other people who aren't using Twitter or that Twitter could make new products that would appeal to the existing users and keep them around longer, keep them more engaged, give yeah. people a way to monetize that that audience? Yeah, I, I meant more the former. Yeah. Though I certainly think the, the latter also holds true in that there are probably things you can do to Twitter now to increase the usage among the current cohort. 
of users. Uh, and, and that, you know, is work they're continuing to focus on, and I think it's important. Uh, but I'm, I'm more interested in the first case just because the expansion of the total addressable market for Twitter has long been, you know, something that people have puzzled over. Have the existing Twitter uh, uh, managers, some of whom listen to this podcast, called you up and said, all right, smart guy. Let us know what, what you think these mystery products are. <laughs> not really, though. Yeah. You know, I know people there. Uh, there are a lot of smart people inside Twitter uh, working hard on this uh, type of problem. And, and so, um, yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, we went through Twitter. Uh, so what, Snapchat? Snapchat kind of seems to me like the same issue, but you have a different take on it. Uh, a bit. Snapchat's fascinating to me um, in the way that a lot of social networks are fascinating to me because I think there are certain, what might you call them, truths about <laughs> people as they grow up and, and what they want from the world. Um, I actually think, you know, there's one way of analyzing social networks, which is just on the utility they provide. Uh, messaging apps are probably like the, the cleanest or purest example. You know, we use those to communicate with people that we know. There's um, utility in that. And, you know, one traditional school of thought on social networks is that in the beginning, when there's nobody on the social network, you have to provide some single-player utility. And then once a lot of people are on there, if you've structured it properly, it becomes a multiplayer game. Single-player utility meaning you can go use it. You don't need to know anyone on the service. Right. You can still get value. Even if there's nobody else on the service. You can go play Fortnite without having any other friends that play <laughs> Fortnite. Right. Like uh, some games are like that. Uh, and so that's one way of analyzing social networks. And I actually think that... That way of thinking about them is actually pretty easy for most people to grok, right? It's it's pretty clear if something's giving you single-player utility, and most people wouldn't see that. But another way to think about social networks is in terms of how you accumulate social capital. And I found that like a good way to think about early social networks and whether they're getting traction and whether it'll stick around is whether you as a person can go on there and accumulate some level of social capital. And so when I think about Snapchat versus Facebook and, you know, Instagram and all of that, that's, that's an alternate way. What does way. social capital look like in a social network? Do you mean, are you talking about likes and, and that sort of scoreboard counting? Yeah, well. That we're not supposed to care about, but a lot of people <laughs> care about because we're petty people. <laughs> right, right. Humans, uh, humans want a lot of things. You may want financial capital. You may want money. Uh, social capital is a little different. Social currency, it is. Likes is one way of measuring Some that. kind of recognition. That, yeah, that other people followers, can identify. Uh, you know, your place in a social hierarchy and, and how you measure that. And social networks are all pretty good um, about, you know, uh, coming up with the basic ways for you to accumulate some of that. So likes and followers are a very common way. On Twitter, you can get retweets. Uh, and anything like that starts to give you a sense that, oh, you know what? I have an audience. Right. I have a following. And this is great. So with Snapchat... That doesn't really exist, right? Well, what's interesting about <laughs> Snapchat was I think if you look at uh, young people on Facebook, right, their parents were joining. Right. Uh, a lot of, you know, people uh, who are in their teens and things like that are still trying to figure out who they are. They're trying on identities. And in the old world, before social media, right, you can kind of do that without having some like permanent record right. <laughs> that would follow you around on life. So there's sort of double whammy for Facebook at the time. One is that your parents were there monitoring 
everything that it's you're uncool posting. and there's a permanent record. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And right, so, Snapchat, so I get the value of that for Snapchat. So yeah. It flips that around. Your parents literally can't figure out how to use the right, app. Right, right. Uh, and there's no record. So, right. So what is the limit then for them? So I think one of the challenges for Snapchat is there's been a lot of discussion about them broadening out to a wider right. audience. And uh, there are a couple things. One is this sort of ephemeral content um, bit. I actually don't know that older people need that as much. You know, I think as we grow older, we actually place more value on nostalgia. And yeah, I love the Facebook feature where they show me pictures of my kids that I posted nine years <laughs> ago. Like, that is, that's my Facebook crack. Yeah. When I grew up, my, my dad would film everything we did. He was like one of those early camcorder adopters. Yeah. So at every event, we're like, Dad, you know, put the camera away. Like, why? And uh, years later, you know, after um, my mom had passed away especially, we went back to all those old videotapes, you know, and transferred them to DVD. And now you watch them. You could sit around watching hours. And I was like, I wish I had the camera on even more. Like, yeah. I wish it, <laughs> because you can go back and just live the moment. And so the time value of content sort of has a weird curved shape to it. And so I think for Snapchat, that's that's one challenge. Just that, like, look, I don't know that ephemerality is a key appeal. So again, it seems feature. like the like the Twitter problem, right? The thing that you built that re- that lots mm-hmm. of people at the beginning responded to. Mm-hmm. It has a ceiling and just that there's only a certain number of people who want that version of the product. Yeah. The second thing is that uh, if you look at Snapchat's interface, which, which is famously sort of opaque to older people yeah. who don't know how to deal with it, uh, it is sort of really prioritized for a generation that's super visually literate. I mean, it still opens to the camera. Um, and when you watch young people versus old people using Snapchat, my observation is that they use it very, very differently. You know, older people I know on there are usually posting a lot of stories, using it kind of like a broadcast medium, like you'd use Instagram or mm-hmm. anything like that. Uh, whereas young people mostly message each other right. with it and mostly do it in uh, pictures and videos. And even though content is ephemeral on Snapchat, I think they've done a very smart thing in understanding how young people want to accumulate social capital. So in the earliest days, I don't know if you remember, there was like kind of the best friend leaderboard. On Snapchat? No. Yeah, it may predate even when you used it, but, you know, based on I'll your interactions. I'll confess to being an almost never user of Snapchat. <laughs> Not only, surprising. Only, only, only in an obligatory professional way. <laughs> Confirms my thesis. But, uh, you know, you would get a ranking of who a person's best friends were based on the volume uh-huh. of Snapchat interactions. And that's a form of social capital. It's like the structure of your social graph is being made more visible. When they took that feature away, uh, you know, the users of Snapchat protested heavily. But what they replaced it with is something super interesting, uh, streaks. So now every day that you and a friend snap each other, your streak gets incremented by one. And if you forget to do it one day and you both <laughs> don't respond, right. then is that the public? streak is break. So uh, you can see it like on your own friend list. You can see that on Snapchat. And if you watch young people, you know, like my nephew, for example, I look on his phone, he's got dozens of streaks going. That, right, but that's an internal measure. It's not a public. Right, you can't see. It's not a bragging point, right? It's, 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 it's a nudge. Yeah, but what matters, uh, the social capital here matters is between you and your friends, yeah. right? And I think that is uh, smart. They basically, you know, the problem with the best friend leaderboard is you could only have one best friend. So I'm still trying to yeah. get you to, to offer advice for Evan Spiegel. What is the thing that, that, that he doesn't get about his product <laughs> growth limit? Well, I think actually... Uh, about his user growth limit. I actually think, I'm not sure that 
Snapchat should focus on uh, trying to get old people yeah. to switch over to using the product. I, I would be uh, much more focused on the next generation of young people and whether they will be also using Snapchat or whether uh, they will find some other network of their own. Um, because to some extent, I think the old people are, you know, <laughs> they don't need a lot of those things. And it's a distraction to the company to try to rejigger the entire product interface to attract those folks. Let's let's move to Instagram and Facebook because they're owned by the same company. Um, some similarities, both huge, right? Massive. Uh, Instagram's growing insanely mm-hmm. fast. Facebook is still really growing, mm-hmm. given that it's at two billion. Like it should have, it should have topped out a long time ago. Right, right. So they both. There's a lot of issues specifically for Facebook, uh-huh. um, but it seems like they kind of have a handle on product. Yeah, you know, Facebook, uh, kind of like Amazon, I think is a company where you have to slice it and look at it in different markets. So Facebook in different countries. Uh, really serves different purposes. You know, in some countries, for example, you know, you, you travel through Asia. It's the internet. Yeah, it is the internet. You know, it's it's weird. Uh, when I'm here in the States, I might look up uh, a restaurant on, you know, Yelp or, you know, OpenTable or Google Maps. But, you know, when I'm abroad, they don't have <laughs> something that's quite like right. that. You know, you just go to Facebook and you find the page for a business and that is their presence on the internet. So I think it's hard to analyze Facebook as just one monolithic thing. Uh, it's a series of individual social graphs. And then there's the sort of like the country level social graphs that fit together. And so I think they are probably in many markets still growing because they are kind of like AOL was back in the day, sort of your one way to get on the internet. Uh, the US market, because it's more mature for Facebook, is where I spent some of my time in my piece thinking because right. I think that's uh, that's an interesting subset of Facebook. Uh, that's the one where the graph has gotten so large that I think there may be some negative <laughs> economies of scale. Meaning? Uh, meaning the, the very size of the network sort of works against them. So every additional person on uh, Facebook makes the service a little bit less useful or less usable to you. Because um, why, why do I care whether if, – if, if I'm sharing with my friends and my friends are on Facebook, why do I care whether Facebook is adding users or not? Uh, because I think there's an effect by which if that audience of people in your Facebook friends graph gets large enough, it starts to include all sorts of people. <laughs> right. Because that, that's different. That's whether I'm adding people to my Facebook friend group right, 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 versus right. the total size of the Facebook. Right. What matters for you is really like who's in your friend graph because that, right. that's who you're publishing to. And I noticed this for myself. You know, I started adding people I'd met in a business setting, coworkers, yeah. you have, you know, family, you have friends. And, you know, humans uh, by nature are very good at maintaining different identities for different groups. But Facebook, by being the largest social network in the history of the world, has basically <laughs> munged them all together. Now, I know with the algorithmic feed, if I publish something, I'm not sure who's going to see it, but potentially all those people are going to see it. And so I think most humans aren't uh, sort of like, uh, by nature, good at figuring out how to broadcast to everybody. they And or whether they want to, right? Right, right. Um, and that, that you makes got a line hard. here about, about uh, you, say, you say basically that you say the, the longer you've been on, the, the less likely you are to post. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the sort of the, there's a yeah. hill, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and then there's a, there's a side. You say not everyone's like this. There's some psychopaths who are comfortable <laughs> sharing their thoughts no matter the size of the audience. <laughs> I mean, I do notice this when I go on Facebook. I'm not saying my friends are psychopaths, but it's <laughs> there is a consistent group of people who are posting a lot. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't know how many Facebook friends I have, but I assume it's hundreds. <laughs> yeah. And I'm only seeing probably right. a very small slice of them on a recurring basis. So it, right. I guess what I'm describing is what you're describing. Right? There's less yeah. utility there for me. Right. There's a form of, I think, um, adverse selection where you get into a point where the overshares start to take over. Because, and that's all that you can interact with in the feed. And that makes the other people even maybe more reluctant to share. So absent yeah. of uh, leaving aside the fake news problem, and I guess you can argue that it's related, and, and the regulation mm-hmm. problem, which is also related, you're saying that Facebook's wall is, is Facebook's size, right? <laughs> they, they've grown yeah. so big that the more they grow, the more they're depressing the use of, of their existing users. Yeah, and, and I think... Uh, the way to maybe address that or think about it is think about how to break up that massive single surface area into smaller surfaces where we are more accustomed as humans. <laughs> I'd never share. heard anyone using surface area as a description until we had the the Facebook execs uh, on a Code Media for the first time, <laughs> and then people said, "Oh no, no, all the engine, all the product people now use surface area." But when <laughs> when did that become a thing? I, you know, I don't know. We were talking about asymptotes earlier. I just think there's something. Uh, you have a lot of engineers and people who have, you know, like using math terms. And it all sounds, you know, if I used asymptote, it sounds more Yeah, scientific. surface area is great. Sounds, <laughs> sounds super cool, like you're going to the moon. Right. Um, so break that up. And then, and then Instagram, again, doesn't seem to have really any problems at all now. I mean, as someone who uses it a bit, I'm seeing a lot more ads there. Sure. I can sort of tolerate it. It's free service. There's cool yeah. stuff. It seems yeah. like they've got a handle on it. Yeah, I think there's something about the visual medium, first of all, that, um, and, I, and I note this, is that, you know, Facebook has all these media types. They have status updates. They have some videos. They have photos. They have, they have a lot of different formats. Uh, but Instagram was sort of visual from the beginning, and I think that was a huge advantage for them. It kept some of the, you know, more overt toxicity out of things. Um, and I, I just think, you know, look... It's harder humans, to upset people with a single image than it would yeah, be with a... Yeah, it's a little bit harder to troll visually. Not, I mean, it's certainly possible, yes. but I just think, you know, like the sort of offensive status update from your uncle who thinks Obama was a Muslim or yeah. something, you usually get less of, of that. Um, I think that visual mediums in general are just more appealing than text overall. So, I mean, you know this better than anyone. The number, you know, the average person still watches like four to six hours of TV a day. Maybe not, you know, all the super productive professionals that you and I know. I think they are still cramming in the TV. <laughs> yeah, maybe they are, but uh, you know that that's probably the most addictive uh, medium. So, so created. what is so what is the Instagram limit that they're not aware of? Uh, well, that one's a tough one, and um, I'm not completely you sure. Think they're good. They're 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 excluded from this. Well, certainly they're still growing, um, and, and I think they have a lot of headroom for growth still. Um, I do think that, you know, over time, um, they could probably, you know, spend more time on sort of more overt narrative and narrative structures because, you know, it's kind of just an unstructured uh, bunch of images and videos right now. And you start to see some people doing that with stories where they're, like, doing sort of, like, linked storytelling in a way, but... The app isn't really optimized for that. Um, and at some point, I just think with all things, like, and this, this uh, goes for Facebook as well, one of the 
things is that the newsfeed structure, the vertical scrolling interface itself, is good for some things and not other things. You know, right? Like it's always tempting because you're one thumb swipe away from something new. So sitting on one piece of content for a long time, spending time with that, you know, it, it's. But it be seems hard. like yeah. if I'm Instagram, what I would say is I, that's great. I know that, and other people can create other products. I have a version of a product that people love, yeah. and I don't want to try to create other verticals and other story types because yeah. this thing works really well. Right. Uh, I think that, but if you look at how flexible Instagram's been across their history and sort of just changing things up, uh, I imagine they do have... <laughs> I have this theory that all tech companies eventually will want all things uh, when it comes to attention. And so... I think they're a company that would be willing to say, hey, you know what, we should build a separate app that's more optimized for whatever, messaging, uh, more optimized for long-form narratives and things like that. I think everybody still looks at that four to six hours that people watch TV if you're in tech and, and think, wow, I would love me some of that time. Yeah, let's talk about that in a minute. Let's take a sure. quick commercial sponsor break. We'll be right back with Eugene. Today's show is sponsored by Mac Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. I'm wearing the socks right now. That's why it seems so comfortable. So not only are they comfortable, not only do they look great, they smell great. They're made of naturally antimicrobial fiber that actually eliminates odor. They're easy to buy. Go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. I buy them myself. That is the best endorsement I can give you. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. You will like these things if for some reason you don't like them. Unbelievable. You can hang on to them. Tell Mac Weldon they will send you your money back. You get 20% off with the promo code RECODE at MacWeldon.com. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. I'm back here with Eugene Way, who just provided a nice segue to this part of the conversation. I want to talk about Amazon, which is where you started your career. Sure. Um, we we're still talking about this viral essay you did, The Invisible Asymptote, this this idea of, of where a company's limits are. You start off that essay talking about Amazon, figuring out that they were going to bump into this limit where people wanted free shipping, and if you didn't give them free shipping, they were going to shop less. Mm -hmm. They solved that. Um, and Amazon's cranking. Just a minute ago, you said, it seems like most tech companies sort of want to own some of that TV time. Mm -hmm. Is that sort of a crucial issue for Amazon, moving in to that time we're spending watching television, watching video. I, I can't tell from the outside whether this is something they are very passionate about and very serious about or still haven't fully committed mm. to. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, I'm like you on the outside there, the outside. so uh, not sure, but... Certainly, but you, you, did, you did spend some time in, in this essay talking about where you think their, their limits are. Right, Which I guess right. is a different question. Yeah, that's a different question. But, but I do, certainly if you look at the hiring and spending at Amazon, it seems like they're serious about that space. Uh, unlike maybe some other companies, it's not quite as clear to me maybe their um, sort of strategic approach to that space is. Uh, but, you know, they're an interesting company in that right now Prime Video is bundled into the Prime subscription, which makes it a little different than the other competitors in the streaming so video space. I think it was, right, at one end you've got Netflix, they're a video company, mm -hmm. right? That is what they do. They're clearly going to spend as much as they can as long as the market allows them to keep spending as much, as much as they can. The more content they build and create, the more users they can subscribe. I think of the other end of companies like Facebook and Google, yeah. which are in the media business but don't want to say they're in the media business and they still really want to be a platform and they're willing to invest some 
amount of money in media, but they're not quite sure. And the middle maybe is is Apple, mm-hmm. which has avoided it, but is now getting into it. Um, and I, for a long time, I mean, the Netflix people would say this. They say, well, our obvious competition is going to be Amazon. They're going to be matching us. They're going to be competing really hard with us. But they're not spending the same amount on content mm-hmm. as yeah. Netflix is. Um, they certainly have the resources to do it. So when I see them spending billions, but not the number of billions that Netflix is spending, I'm trying to figure out what they're thinking about. Yeah. Well, you know, if you if you look at it as a um, add-on to Prime right now, there's one way you could look at all their spend, which is just a customer acquisition uh-huh. vehicle for Prime. Which is what Jeff Bezos says out loud, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. More people watch Transparent. Right. More people buy shoes from us or whatever it is. <laughs> right, exactly. And so that's one way to look at it. I think they're sort of spending at a level where uh, I would think that that wouldn't be the only reason you would do it. Uh, you know, at some point, uh, everyone in the streaming services has to think about retention. You're trying to minimize churn. So, you know, you're continuing to spend on video at Netflix to keep people from churning out. And so uh, you have to analyze content both from a customer acquisition standpoint and from a retention standpoint. Uh, I actually, but either way, we're, that, that, that view is we're, we're, we're creating this media for you. We're buying it or creating it. So you either come work with us or stay with us. Either way, it's the same thing. But it's not... But it's to support our other business, which is our real business, and this is kind of our loss leader. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is one of the challenges for Amazon is that because the video is part of Prime, uh, I, I think uh, one of the advantages for Netflix, for example, is that it's so pure a strategy, like that piece in New York Magazine this week about Netflix makes yeah. clear there are some real advantages when all you are is a video company. <laughs> And all your spending goes to support your single subscription service. For example, in Prime, where you have video, you've got music, you've got, I, I, there are tons of things in Prime that I don't even know about probably. Um, it, it gets a little bit hard probably to measure what's contributing what. You know, how much does free shipping contribute to your Prime subscription yeah. versus video and all of that? And can their video spend actually be measured fairly if it were just a standalone business? Like, how do you assign that credit? So I think that's certainly one of the challenges. You, you were at Amazon early, like we talked about. When, what year did you get there? 97? Uh, yeah, I was there 97 to 04. And, and you said that early on, they were in books, but you were right away talking about launches into music and, and, mm-hmm. and video and other stuff. Is what they're doing now what you imagined or what you guys discussed them doing in 1997? Uh, it's certainly much broader than I could have imagined. Uh, I think when I got there, I right away was working with a bunch of MBAs, you know, like the Andy Jassy and Jason Collier and all these folks on different business verticals. You know, we were going to go into music and clearly into video and software and a bunch of things. But, you know, the things like web services and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the uh, even the, I guess, the prime video and a lot of this would have been hard to imagine. So when you <laughs> talked about video and music, the idea was, well, other people will create music and will sell it to them. Mm-hmm. Other people will create TV shows and will sell it to them, which they obviously do. Right, right. But this is a different, this is something you hadn't contemplated back then. Yeah. I guess the only hint <laughs> we would have had uh, on that back uh, in the day was just that when Jeff, you know, wanted our mission to be the world's most customer centric company, yeah. that's such a broad, broad uh, mission that it can encompass almost anything. Just like the fact that, uh, you know, our name was Amazon, you know, it wasn't like onlinebooks.com or something like that. There was always that possibility (laughs) that our business would be broader. You know, you'd certainly be in long-term planning meetings where crazy ideas would be thrown around. 
But to see them successful on so many different fronts is probably something that I don't know that any entrepreneur, no matter how large you think, can imagine happening. You mentioned the folks you work with, including Jason Kyler, but you didn't call him Jason Kyler. Have I been pronouncing his name wrong for a decade? Jason Kyler. Okay, good. Um, So he was at Amazon, you were at Amazon. He went to run Hulu shortly after it launched, back when it was originally sort of conceived of as uh, the the big TV guy's response to YouTube and Apple, and it was a place to go watch sure. their TV shows the day after they aired. Um, what did you learn? And and that's a really interesting company. It's yeah. moved around. They, yeah. the, the networks have tried to figure out if, if they're going to sell it, if they're going right. to keep it. It's still sort of up in the air as, yeah. as Disney and Fox and Comcast sure. are all jockeying around. But what did you learn working at Hulu in the early days that is worth thinking about as you're watching HBO and Netflix and Disney, Comcast, Fox, some derivation of that, all fight for streaming video. Yeah. I think, um, and, and this probably relates also to uh, the streaming music space as well. You know, in the early days of Hulu, a lot of what I hear from the media companies was, hey, you know, piracy is becoming a problem for us. And so we see sort of Hulu as addressing the piracy problem. Because we'll give it to you for free. Yeah. We'll put ads there. Then you, right. you have no reason not to watch it from us, and we'll still make some money. Exactly, exactly. And, and sort of, you know, how the music industry in the beginning may have reacted to um, Napster and things like that. But as you've seen with music, you know, uh, it took a while for a number of factors to happen. You know, the iPhone got created. You know, like everyone was connected all the time. So now you could uh, listen to music anywhere. And all these conditions come together and the one day, boom, you know, the streaming subscription service thing happens. You know, I always had a broader thought. Almost, early. almost a couple decades yeah. for that business to really work at scale. Right. So um, when it's, Partly because partly of the reasons you described, partly because the industry itself didn't right. want to embrace that idea. Exactly. They still wanted to sell CDs for a long time. Then they said, all right, well, we'll we know CDs are going away, but we're going to sell you Downloads. That's yeah. still the business we know. And the idea of selling you access right. was something that we're very worried about cannibalizing those existing businesses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think that um, when there are like a variety of factors that converge at the same time, like if they don't all converge at the same time, you just think, oh, okay, the time isn't right for a certain business. But then one day, all the factors converge and it happens very quickly. I think from my early days at Hulu, I'd say you can play defense in the media space uh, for too long and think that you're safe. And then by the time you realize you have to play offense, it's often too late, right? Your competitors have sprinted past you. Uh, You know, I I look at a company like HBO. If I were at HBO and I saw the first few Netflix original shows, I probably would have been very tempted to just laugh them off as uh, pretenders. Uh, I don't even remember what the first couple well, the first of one, shows. The first one had uh, uh, the guy from Bruce Springsteen's band. Oh, right, from The Sopranos. Yeah, Little yes. Steven. Yes, it uh, was uh, set in like Norway yeah. or Sweden. Lily Hammer. Lily Hammer. the show. Right, It's kind right. of a punchline now. But then, right. then maybe they did something else after that. And then they quickly said, all right, we're going to do this for real. We're going to make an HBO show with HBO talent. David mm-hmm. Fincher, Kevin mm-hmm. Spacey. Right, Later right. regretted Kevin Spacey. But that we're <laughs> going to spend $100 million. We're going to tell everyone we're spending $100 million. Mm-hmm. So right away, that was an HBO-level show. Right, right. And if you look at HBO, I, I think, you know, if you scope your ambition to be kind of based on, on what the business has always been, it's easy to scope it too small. So if I were HBO, I might have said, look, I want to win Sunday night because Sunday night is sort of prestige TV night now. I want to win all the Emmys. And 
uh, I want to be seen as that brand. You know, HBO stands for that. Like, it's not TV. Yeah. It's like high quality. Um, but I, I think if you look at Netflix, they came along and they were like, yeah, we'd like to win some Emmys. That would be great. Uh, it would be great to win Sunday night. But actually, we're doing something very different. We're trying to win all the nights for all the people. And not just all the nights. We're trying to win the afternoons and any time. Right. Well, they started off very consciously sort of going after an HBO audience, going after prestige right. stuff, right. going after you and me as consumers and sure. people who would write about this stuff in the New York Times as consumers. Yeah. And then over the last few years, they've said, well, now we're going to give everyone something to watch. Kids, yeah. people who like Ashton Kutcher, people who vote for Donald Trump. Right. We're going to just flood yeah. it. Yeah, and and what they have now is an economies of scale advantage, which yep. I don't think traditional media companies necessarily thought there's an economies of scale advantage. Because in the old days, you sort of thought, okay, there's only so many nights in the week and in the programming guide when adults are watching television, so we're a finite inventory. And Netflix came along and was like, you know what, we can probably broaden that. And if we get an economies of scale advantage, meaning they have more subscribers than anyone, now, every additional dollar we spend is spread across the largest possible subscriber base. And now they're the, the heavyweight in the room, right? They have 125 million subscribers. Yeah, I mean, the big concern at HBO is we don't have enough resources. It used to be we don't take, a, we don't take Netflix seriously, and then yeah. you guys are giving Netflix too much credit, and now we need more resources yeah. to compete with them, and that's, that's going to be the issue for, for the AT&T deals. Will AT&T give them that, right. those Right. Those dollars. Like at Amazon, I always knew from the very beginning, our whole business was an economies of scale business. We had to get to scale. And now Netflix is at that. So for them, once you have an economies of scale advantage over your competitors, the number one thing you should do is actually just leverage your scale, right? So it makes sense for Netflix to keep spending um, to a degree that none of its competitors can because it, that's its core asset. So I always liken it to it, you know, if you're a sumo wrestler... <laughs> And you're the heavyweight in the room. You don't want to be, you know, uh, trading punches with the karate fighter. You Do just want to, like, yeah, sit on top of them. One thing Netflix and the other uh, internet companies that are playing around in content haven't done, Amazon's doing a little bit, is gone after the, the big ticket uh, sports stuff. Mm-hmm. Gone after an NFL night or season. Sure. Um, the stuff they've been doing is all playing at the margins, right? Mm-hmm. You can watch Thursday night NFL games on Amazon, but it's really sure. broadcast on CBS or NBC. Yeah. Uh, they're not spending real money on it. A lot of people, I think, including the leagues, assume these guys are going to come and they're going to spend a ton of money and that's what's going to keep our rights going. Do you think that's going to happen? I think at some point. I think the prices are still a little high for most tech com- companies. Even though, Even though they can easily afford it, right? They have more resources than the networks that are paying for them. Right. I actually think one thing on this front is that if you look at a lot of tech CEOs, many of them don't watch much sports themselves. Right. Culturally, <laughs> they, I, I, I remember when there was a discussion whether YouTube was going to go after these NFL rights and someone <laughs> explaining to me that their business slash content guys had to explain to Sergey Brin <laughs> and, and, and Larry Page basically what pro football was and how it worked and they were all right. confused by it and confused about how the rights were spread out. And this was not that long ago. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how many meetings I've been at, at different tech companies where, you know, I'll have to pause and say, you you know who LeBron James is, right? Or, you know, you know Beyonce? And do they not? Uh, or, yeah, I, think, uh, I think the way— uh, But they also— they're smart people. They sure. understand that this is a popular thing Yeah, in, yeah. in the end. Uh, ultimately, I think the way to frame it for a lot of technologists, because, because there is, you know, there's that um, stereotype that tech people think of all content as a commodity. Yeah. And, you know, they're just like dismissive of it. And 
And I think there's a lot of truth to it, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of truth to it. Uh, So the way I try to explain these things to um, some of the tech people to, to help them better appreciate the value is to say that content can be like a social network. You know, Star Wars is a social network in its structure, right? I, I was always shocked that my what nephews... That uh, what that means is that, um, you know, all the people who watch Star Wars and are fans of Star Wars, one of the reasons we watch is that we can talk about it with other people. It's a shared narrative for us. And so Watching net- at home, but you, part of the value is sharing it with somebody in real life or on the internet... Yeah, it's cultural capital for conversation and for bonding us together. And so uh, a network effect is classically, you know, every additional person adds more value to that. So every additional person in the world that watches Star Wars makes Star Wars more valuable to me because that's one more person that we can, you know, make a joke about Yoda or something and, and have that. And so if you look at certain types of content, sports is one of them they have that quality of being like a social network. Like if you broke down the attributes of the content and you looked at all the fans of the Philadelphia Eagles or all the fans of the NBA, um, it is like a shared religion in a way. And so, you know, the same way that Zuckerberg at Facebook probably looked at WhatsApp and um, looked at Instagram and said, wow, people are going to think I'm paying too much for this, but I understand the value of <laughs> social networks, right. network effects, virality, and I think I'm underpaying for it. Uh, I think a lot of content gets undervalued in a way. So this is by, what, the, again, the sports owners think is going to happen, whether they think it's because the Zuckerbergs of the world are super smart uh-huh. and see the value of their product, right. or they're suckers. Either right. way, they think that they're going to show up with a big checkbook. Yeah. And the reason I asked you this is, is one of the essays that really struck me that you wrote before I can't remember what it's called, but you talk about Will Smith and the NFL and Turtles in the Galapagos and and ESPN. But it ends with you being uh, very down on the value of professional sports as a a media property, um, as someone who is a sports fan, but saying, look, I just – I think the value of this – is is really diminishing, and it, it, regardless of whether it's sure. regardless of whether the TV guys are paying too much, I just think this as a product, as yeah. an entertainment slash cultural product, is sure. going down because there's better stuff available. Right, right. Um, I think one uh, the whole Galapagos uh, Galapagos analogy was just that the sports league had a monopoly for so long, like a lot of other media, things, yeah, like newspapers, exactly. people who thought they were really successful, and in fact they just didn't have competition. Right, right. I think they um, are slow moving. Um, they may not recognize how competitive the entertainment landscape is getting. And um, I think they get locked into a sort of like um, format rigidity. There's this is a concept of nominal rigidity where like the price is what the price is because it's always been that way and it gets locked in. And I think that is how sports leagues think about their product. They're very used to broadcasting it in a particular way to a particular audience. And I think if you're a tech company and you're looking at sports rights, it's a little bit of a game of, wow, they want so much for this, but I think the value is diminishing over time that I can probably afford to wait. And by the way, the reason it's diminishing is in part because of me, Mm -hmm. because I'm providing people other things they can do with their time. Uh, You've got this interesting riff in here. Again, it's better to read it than to hear me talk about it, but you're talking about measuring entertainment based on the the, sort of the brittleness of the narrative. Right, right. right? Part of it is is this thing as valuable to you if you just read a summary of it, which is the reason why I've stopped watching Westworld now, I realized. <laughs> I, like, enjoyed re- I enjoyed reading the recaps of it more. I kept falling asleep uh-huh. watching it. Yeah. And or um, if you just show me the highlights of it, mm-hmm. is that as valuable, mm-hmm. which is very interesting to me because I think of 
I'm just riffing now instead of you, but but um, I think of House of Highlights. Yeah. This is the Instagram NBA yes. uh, highlight thing. We've, yeah. we've had the folks from SB Nation, sorry, yeah. from Bleacher Report on here before, uh, talking about that product. To me, that's a symbol of how smart the NBA is. They've allowed that product yeah. to thrive. It, it adds right. value. It makes me more interested in the NBA. Yeah. But if I'm reading your essay, the fact that I enjoy House of Highlights so much should make the NBA worried mm-hmm. because I'm— the suggestion, right, is I'm going to be more happy watching House of Highlights than I would watch an mm-hmm. NBA game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think the NBA is smart in that, look, there are always going to be some people who watch the full games. And if I'm the NBA, I actually look at it as just multiple ways for people to enjoy my product. Um, but that's not typically a traditional media company way of thinking. You know, if you look at the NFL, which is probably the polar opposite and being sort of the most locked into specific formats, um, not allowing your content to travel on social media just means that you're gonna, not going to reach certain people. Um, if there's anything you can learn from, you know, like a company, like a, a media company like BuzzFeed, it's that, hey, <laughs> all this attention is spent on all these social networks. You kind of have to go where the fish are. And, uh, you know, I, I think sports leagues have to recognize that over time, the, the value of their content is actually slowly eroding. And if they don't get ahead of it, like I said, you know, you can play defense for the longest time. By the time it's, uh, you know, you recognize you have to play offense, it's probably too late. We were jumping around as I knew we would. Yeah. Um, two more things I want to make sure we, we, we talked about. You were at Oculus for how long? Uh, almost two years. I guess two a years. Year and, yeah, like and your job years. was to go create, acquire content for those headsets. Um, anyone who's listening to this has a notion that VR had a lot of hype. Yep. People are now soured on that, at least temporarily. Yeah. Um, one of the arguments is just the equipment was too bulky and too expensive. Sure. And, and everyone who went to the code conference uh, earlier this month got a $200 Oculus headset. I've got one right. sitting at home. It's pretty yeah. cool. It's, it works independent. You don't need a phone for right, it. Right. It's at 200 bucks. That's supposed to be the magic price point. So is this a problem where the product isn't – is this something where the, the product is now the right – is cheap enough, works well enough – that VR is going to take off again, or is there a content issue with VR? Uh, I think it's multiple things, which makes it tricky. I don't know that it's one thing. I certainly think the Oculus Go headset by, you know, not requiring a phone and being portable and uh, not having to tether it solved a number of issues. Now, the question is, you have all these factors that are holding VR back. Like, it's a multi-dimensional asymptote. It's not one thing that it's going to take pushing a lot of these things uphill together before I think it becomes a mainstream thing. What are, top of your head, the first couple problems you think about? If we solve solve price and portability. Mm -hmm. Uh, Resolution of the screens, uh, quality of this sort of like, I guess, storytelling and sort of broad content. Yeah. I actually think a lot of the games in VR are amazing already. Like if you're a console game player, some of the stuff you can do with a nice VR headset is is unbelievable. But for other people, you know, uh, who aren't heavy gamers, um, I still think there's probably a gap uh, where you may leave that headset on your coffee table for weeks on end. It's funny. We, we got it last week. Yeah. Uh, we did a Jurassic Park thing, which I'd actually seen earlier. Kids were blown away by it. Yeah. Put it on the coffee table, or actually out of reach of the kids, and none of no, they haven't asked to use it again. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I haven't thought to use it again. And then I got a press release saying that, that Fox Sports was going right. to make part of the World Cup available in VR. And yeah. That's stupid. Anyone who's put this headset on would not want to watch a game <laughs> uh-huh. in VR, maybe two minutes of VR. Right. And it seems to me that's right. one of the issues is there's yeah. a lot of like a lack of creativity or just people haven't figured out how to be creative enough to right. figure out what content works this way. Right, right. I actually think there's there are individual pieces of content that are amazing in VR. There, uh, but there are no economics right now. Right, it's all subsidized by Facebook and Google and these companies to try to keep this VR train moving forward, uh, and that's what's sustaining it. But we don't have these like positive feedback loops yet, where you see, wow, more people using it, which is unusual for for a Google or a Facebook, right, to put a lot of resources into things that doesn't show results at the beginning, it seems like. Yeah, it is, but um, I also will say this about VR. I actually do believe it is going to be a transformative platform uh-huh. shift at some point. And so, you know, all tech companies who have experienced missing out on a platform shift um, are a little bit, you know, hesitant to miss out again. So we and don't so, know what this is going to be, but we think it's something big. There's a version of this with scooters right now, right? Yes. Maybe a little more crass. But right. but uh, we think there's a thing. We can afford to experiment on it. It's not AdWords. It's not yep. a news feed where we can see that it works right away, but we'll keep, we'll keep going. Yeah. Um, and then I want to bring this all the way back to Amazon. Um, ask you one more Amazon question. I mean, again, again, I can't stress this enough. Like your insight into Amazon, a company that's famously – close mouth about what mm-hmm. they do, gives her a little information I think is tremendously valuable. You should be, we should charge for this podcast. <laughs> you should charge for your blog. Um, but but uh, you had a great post, they all bleed together, sort of explaining that people still fundamentally don't understand the company, especially when it comes to them losing money or mm-hmm. having very slim margins. Can you, can you tease that out for us? Yeah. What's I the guess, thing people don't get about Amazon? Yeah, and I don't even know if this is a mainstream thing that people don't get. Maybe it's more of a media thing. Media businessy yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, like I, I still run into people who are tempted to lump Amazon in with, like, say, uh, Movie Pass or different things where they're like, you Cosmo.com. Know <laughs> yeah. These are just companies that just keep spending and spending. Or and then, Uber. You know, yeah. It's like some sort of sham. And. You know, if you just look at the unit economics. They're they're not a real company because they can't turn a profit and they've been at it for years. Right, right. And that just speaks to maybe some of the financial um, opacity, uh, you know, that's inherent in looking at income statements and balance sheets and things like that. But, you know, look, as a retail business, it's pretty simple to say, if I buy something for five cents and I sell it for 10 cents, there's (laughs) a profit in that. And if if I decide, hey, I actually want to do that all over the world and all that, I may invest ahead of when I realize those profits. The unit economics of retail may not be like software level margins, but Amazon makes a profit on most of its retail transactions. And so when people see Amazon make, not making a profit in a quarter, um, they don't realize that it's a lot of just forward investments on Amazon's part. And so it's very different from a business like MoviePass, where I'm not like totally certain about the economics, but it feels like... And Amazon will, yeah. Amazon will say this. We'll say, they'll say, we're taking the money that we made selling you that pencil, yeah. and we're putting it into our next distribution center or our R&D for our robots or wh- right. whatever it's going to be, or we're right. going to build a new cloud business. Sure, sure. Yeah. So they, they do say it. It's, right. I think part of it is a natural skepticism that anyone who remembers the first set of dot-com sure. companies where sure. Cosmo.com really was just 
blowing its money every time you ordered a Ben and Jerry's, right? They were right. losing money on every transaction. Right. And there's right. that fear, that, or like MoviePass, right? Yeah, yeah. You go yeah. see a movie, MoviePass loses money. It seems like a <laughs> terrible business. <laughs> yeah, you know, like if you take a dollar and sell it for, you know, 75 cents, that's that's one thing. But that's not what Amazon's in the business of doing. And so I think, you know, if you look at companies like um, Uber, if you're going to look at the scooter companies, if you're looking even at Netflix when it kind of finally reaches whatever level of subscribers it reaches, you know, well, the important thing is actually like at that level of business, you know, how much do they have to spend and what are the unit economics of their business uh, at that point? And, you know, I think that's just the level of analysis that's necessary to understand whether, hey, this company's losing money because it's just a terrible business. Or they're losing money because they understand that, you know, it's winner take all and you have to get big as fast as possible. So you went to Amazon basically out of college, right? You had a, uh, you no, had a, I had a job. Well, I was set to go to law school. <laughs> I deferred and then I went home and worked in consulting for like a year and a half. So that's sort and of I, standard track, right? You, you go to fancy school and you go into consulting. <laughs> uh, um, do people still do that now? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Maybe maybe they're going to hedge funds or something. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Um, but then you went to Amazon, and I was listening to you on another podcast where you talked about writing a three-page cover letter to get a job you were not qualified for. Uh, <laughs> I didn't get that job, by the way. <laughs> but, you got, but you did get a job, and we yeah. didn't even get to the film school stuff, but yeah. we're, we're at an hour. So we're going to end it here on, on, this, on this question. Since we know that college students do listen to this podcast, what advice do you have for someone who's, who's going to be leaving college in the next year or so and is looking at it about creating their career and whether they want to work at an Amazon or anything else? How would you advise them to go about thinking about that? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing is that I, looking back, I had no idea of the number of jobs that were available to me when I was in college. I really did feel like, you know, if you came out, it was like law school, med school, you know, going to consulting, going to finance. There weren't very many things that were made, you know, available through the career center. So in my career, what I've always prioritized is, okay, just work on building your skills <laughs> and knowledge in a lot of different areas. School probably didn't prepare me to be a product manager at Amazon, but it gave me a framework where I was like, okay, I can learn new things on my own. Um, if I'm disciplined enough, I'll pick up things. And so uh, I come from an era where, you know, like, and it's probably still like this, where I'm sort of just more of a self-made product manager. It wasn't really even a job when I was at Amazon. And so I think your earnings and your job titles and things, they may... Uh, lag your actual skills accumulation, but over the long haul, they tend to converge. It's like a commencement address. <laughs> free, bundled <laughs> in the end of this podcast. If you made it to the one hour and one minute mark, you got a free commencement address from Eugene Way. Eugene, thank you for coming. I've wanted you to come for, for weeks and months. Yes, I'm glad we finally now made it here. happen. I'm sorry I can't pay you for your time. <laughs> the LaCroix is enough. All right, good deal. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring sponsors to you so you can listen to this show for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits this show, and to my producers, Golda Arthur, that's the famous Golda Arthur, and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. I'm back soon. I will see you then.